Hi, this is Andrew Miller from Business Enjoyment and this is another episode of The Tingle Zone. In this episode, I'm talking with Axel Meyerhofer, a property and real estate investor and mentor who helps others find the fastest route to their time freedom point. Axel used to be a test pilot, initially for the German Air Force and then seconded to the US, where he ended up staying once he retired from the military. All the time he was paying attention to what successful people did with their money, which led to him becoming interested in property investment. Using his natural skills of learning, process development and application, he found a way to make it work for him and he's now taken those learnings and looks to help others make it work for them too. In our conversation, we cover such topics as why the search for expert help can be compared to a scientific experiment, the importance of making all of your property investments a turnkey operation, and why the time freedom point is only the start of your real journey. At the end of the day, becoming financially free is not a matter of luck, but a deliberate strategy that is diligently pursued. Before we jump into the interview, if not already done so, please have a listen to my TEDx talk. If you go to my website, businessenjoyment.com, a pop-up will appear giving you direct access. This talk sets out my ethos that life and business is about so much more than just money and sets out how you can be successful and happy at the same time. So do check that out, but for now, sit back, relax. Think about how you can get out of the time money trap, and most of all, enjoy. All right, well, my name is Axel Meyerhofer, and what I do is I help people as a mentor and a coach to get on to what we call the investor journey, or the ideal investor journey, to be precise. And what that is, is basically using residential real estate to build a passive income portfolio that ultimately pays you enough in monthly income so that you no longer have to exchange time for money and you can actually do the things or more of the things that you are passionate about. And there's a lot of little details, but that's basically in a nutshell what we do. And uh, beautiful. And is it purely property that you're focused on or do you occasionally look at other areas as well? Well, we, we look at other areas, or I at least partially with my team, but mainly myself have to look at other areas because the starting point that we find people that come to us and say, hey, you know, let's first have a conversation. Then if the approach, the strategies, the, if you want to, you know, the, the frame that we're working in fits, the starting point is very different for people, right? Like some people have work quite a bit and have a lot of their money sitting in a employer retirement account. Other people have socked some money away in certain things and it can be all kinds of variety of things. Another situation, just to give you one example, where a person that I had been coaching on more personal stuff for a while, and then we were done with that and she was good to go and didn't hear of each other for a while, but I knew and she had told me that she had a house um, in a pretty prestigious area that could, if it were ever sold, bring a lot of money. And then she kind of contacted me and said, I did it. And I'm like, what do you mean you did it? And she said, yeah, I sold the house and it paid even more than we said at the time. You know how crazy the market is. But now I have this pile of money and I need to allocate it because I really don't want to work anymore in the rest of my life. 
and that was like you know that was a seven figure number right so that for, so i have cases where people say i know i want to do this but i have barely any money nor any clue i just have this feeling that when i look around and what do successful people do with their money while they're still working tons and tons and tons invest in real estate so and naturally the media in the last few years has helped us tremendously because they have told all these crazy student stories about people bidding up houses that look like you know little trash bins or stuff like that you know and uh, yeah so that's the point right i need to and have learned and enjoy learning what are some of the tangential things so that I can put them in relation to what we really do, which is all kinds of different uh, ways to invest in residential real estate. So it doesn't matter where you are in your own life journey or financial journey, there is something that can be done to move you forward down this path. Yes, there is something that can be done. But for what's also very important for me is we work and I work best with people where we very early on establish this is this kind of investor ideal investor journey that we really want to be on together and and what i mean by that people for example here and i don't know if this is similar in your area but here in in my area a lot of people ask themselves well if the normal real estate that we all know that we live in gets more and more expensive what other things could i do and still somehow stay in real estate and there's, for example, storage units, right? Like Americans love to buy stuff and then only rarely use it. So they rent a storage unit and put the stuff in there and oftentimes pay for years for the rent and never go there and actually pick anything out of it. But that on a scale is a type of business which is also considered real estate or a pretty famous guy um, from the Bigger Pockets platform started out with a fourplex, which is in my kind of frame, but then um, discovered there was an opportunity that was presented to him that he could invest in a trailer park. And I know this always has kind of like a negative social connotation, but fundamentally you own the land and people rent it from you to put their mobile home on it. So that's you know something that exists but we don't do it and then there is you know people want to invest in malls people want to invest in business parks people want to invest in apartment complexes any on all of those things i think you and i would probably in the audience would agree yeah that's all kind of real estate but it's not really residential not really residential and i have to say maybe for a more international audience in the United States, residential is defined as either a single family home, a duplex, a triplex, or a fourplex, mm. right? Everything bigger than that is not considered residential. It's either commercial or apartment or business or any other names. And so we focus on residential. And if you're interested, or if you think the audience is interested, I'm happy to explain why we focus on that. But that's basically our frame. And I can say it's kind of interesting how much fits into that frame. I even have my surprised myself over the last few years because I started out simply saying, I just find a little house in a well-performing area, buy it, put a tenant in and enjoy the cash flow. And there's way more than that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, the, the um, you've alluded a few times about, you know, which area we're in and, and international audience and things like that. So obviously 
you're based in San Diego, is that right? In, in... Exactly, yeah, that's correct, yes. Um, but uh, clear name and accent gives it away you're not from that area originally. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I have been trying, but it's still there. Yeah. <laughs> Your name's there anyway, to start. Yeah, that that too. That, that's kind of true, yeah. Plenty, plenty of I could have married, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what... what uh, so where, 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 how have you got into got to this point? How have you got to San Diego doing property coaching? Um, where where did you start from? Yeah, so the accent is from Germany, and I had a an, well, yeah, he's still around. So I have an uncle, I should say, <laughs> who used to work for uh, Lufthansa in an executive role, and always uh, gifted me um, these little toy airplanes and. I'm dating myself, but there was a time when airlines like Lufthansa had something called airline um, letter paper and airline envelopes and stuff like that. Because most people, if you do a little bit of aviation history, you find out one of the in original intentions for airline or for, for flying was not necessarily moving people, it was moving mail. Mm. Right? Besides the military stuff, but the commercial yeah. stuff was moving mail and so it was for many many decades i think until the late 60s early 70s that airlines actually transported mail in the cabin and you could get a little um, writing pad and write something on it and, and put it and get a stamp from the stewardess and then they mailed the letter from you for you and so i got these and they were um, made out of a paper that was about as light as possible like really really thin so that was always something special, which kind of connected me to aviation. And then my mother used to say, every time there was a contrail going across the sky, she said, look, Uncle Gerd is up there. <laughs> now, he has no physical possibility that he was in every plane that came across the sky. But for me, being a little kid, that was, oh, man, I want to be there where he is, right? And then when I graduated from school, I... Um, tried to apply, or I did apply actually uh, successfully to uh, Lufthansa, to the airline, did the testing and stuff like that, but that was 1981 timeframe. And anybody who remembers that was pretty shitty time for the economy and employment and inflation was twice as what it is today. And so the airline wrote back after the test and said, you passed the test, but we're not hiring anybody right now. And it's kind of like a, <laughs> In hindsight, right, I'm much calmer about it than I was at the time. But when I got that, I'm like, okay, so you're basically, and they they wrote not only we we're not hiring right now, but we will be again in the future, and then we will consider you. And it was like, okay, so I just finished 20 years of school, so now you're telling me just wait until your life starts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't, don't, <laughs> don't, don't go and get a job until we're ready, and then you can. Yeah, right, 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 and that naturally no indication when that would be. And so my mom. Uh, she was working for the Navy as a civilian um, administrator in the Navy. She told her boss, who was an admiral in the Navy, about my plight, so to speak. And he said, well, we fly planes too. <laughs> and she like, ding, 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 comes home, like totally excited and said, hey, he said, we fly planes too. Why don't you go and apply for the Navy? And I had never really thought about the military, but I went and applied for the Navy and the guy at the recruiting thing said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you already passed the test. So that will increase your chances to pass our testing tremendously. That's great. But I have to tell you one thing, you have to first learn how to drive a boat. And I'm like, what? He said, yeah, first we learn how to drive a boat. And then if you qualify, you can fly a plane. I said, no, no way, I'm not gonna, then I might as well wait, right? 
I mean, did you not like water? I mean, <laughs> do you oh, not know? I was literally born in, in at the North Sea coast, when one of the biggest oil harbors in the world, right? So it wasn't that I didn't like the water. I just thought it was what a waste of time. Why would you want to drive a boat if you actually want to fly, right? And and I must have been somewhat agitated. So he said, you know what? I'm not going to argue with you. If you only want to fly, why don't you go to the Air Force? Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> and, and that tells you kind of like how oblivious I was. I said, okay, well, then where's that, right? <laughs> so I go there and I applied for the Air Force and the, the guy said the same thing. Well, it's probably very helpful that you already went through this kind of testing before. And then I did the test, passed the test, got accepted into the Air Force. They didn't, they were a little smarter. They didn't tell me that you first have to do boot camp and all this stuff. It took about two years before I got into actual flight training, but okay. So that's how I got into it. And then um, I always felt that I, I really had this inquisitive um, strain within myself. And so when I started flying, um, it, it became, I, I, it would be wrong to say it became boring, but it was kind of repetitive. And I was asking, what else can I do? And they said, well, if you really want to learn more about the flying and how everything works, why don't you uh, join the test team, right? And I thought that was awesome. We started to get to know, I always used to say, we knew every bit and bite in the plane by first name. Right? <laughs> so, so I did that. And but one of the cool things in which is actually kind of the bridge to how did I get to uh, real estate investing and mentoring is I did that. But if you think about these little black boxes, and for example, I went to Cottesmore for training and I went to Sardinia in Italy for training. But when it came to the little black boxes, almost all the companies that made the stuff that's inside both software and hardware were in the United States. Yeah. And so my wife and I and our tiny little daughter, baby at the time, we were asked to go to the United States for three, four, six weeks at a time for training because you could only get it at the company who made that box. Mm. Right? And so we had multiple opportunities, sometimes three times a year to come over here and just get to enjoy um, being here. And it was either in California or Texas or places like that where the weather is nice. And, you know, my wife and my daughter were basically had vacation while I was getting the training but it's also an interesting dynamic because when you come as an Air Force representative to a company this is the very rare opportunity for them to ever really meet the customer right like somebody who's really literally using it so the treatment I don't want to say that they they went above and beyond but it always felt like we were treated special we were a tiny group like three people four people like the classrooms were basically happening in a conference room stuff yeah. like that right i mean well, so, just, just my own because obviously as you say the black box which i think are orange aren't they rather than black but if i'm right um but um i'm intrigued to know because i don't have no idea what's in them <laughs> <laughs> electronics and stuff obviously and it's, it's picking up data but you as a practical testing pilot or historically having been a pilot and clearly got the practical skills what was your interaction with the gubbins in the middle of the box how was you you and as you say you're the end user so how are you interacting with that in the testing yeah i'll give you an example that is hopefully explaining it pretty well imagine you have a panel with lots of buttons and a little screen and that shows you the status like in this case that they came up with a panel that would be put in the plane and the black box that is somewhere hidden in in the frame of the plane would have all the computer knowledge on it 
and the box, the little panel with the buttons, is to shoot a missile to a radar emitting site on the ground. And so the missile came from one manufacturer and then the little black box and that user panel came from the other one. Mm. When I went to the training, they explained what the little blocks, box does and I wanna not go into that, but the user panel basically was related to a checklist and the engineers had come up with all the different kinds of ways how you detect that the missile is ready, the missile has detected radar from the ground, the missile has spun up its, its engine, and ultimately the missile is ready, you hit the button and the missile goes off the rail and hopefully hits the target. And there were five or six different ways, states where this and how this could happen. And we were presented after we understood and got the training on what is going on and what are all the influencers, what are all the variables. Then the last step in the training was to say, and here is what we recommend the checklist to look like so that people like me who sit in the plane, fly the plane, what they would have to do on checking the indications on that. And I'm still pointing to the left here, um, to that little um, screen, but then also what buttons to hit. Now, the first thing starts, the vast, vast majority of people are right-handed and that panel was sitting in the lower left corner. So you had to know that you had to push these buttons with your left hand, which the, I don't know if you've ever tried it, but the precision doing it with the other hand, whichever one is your dominant hand versus the other one is much, much less than the, the dominant one. With the right hand, you can be very precise on little buttons. Now, keep in mind in the plane, you're also wearing gloves, right? So. But what ended up happening for the most common circumstance when you would wanna use that missile to kill a radar site on the ground, these really well-meaning engineers had come up with 58 steps. <laughs> and to make it realistic, I ran a few scenarios. I started out already while we were in, in, in California in the training, but then when we came home and we installed it kind of like in, in, in a computer station, like a simulation and I tried sit in a, in a seat with gloves on and I tried to do it. It took me and after long training, really, really being super focused just on that as if there were no plane, I could do it in a little more than a minute. <laughs> now you have to keep in mind the plane is flying 10 miles, right, in that time. And it was completely unrealistic. And so ultimately my task was not only to understand what does the missile do? What does the black box do? What does that panel do? But also then to go back to the company and say, okay, you have so much input, which is something that normally an air crew member would want. I wanna have as much influence on what this thing is doing as possible, but they overdid it to a point that you typically had no more than a minute from when you saw somebody who wants to shoot you from the ground until you better hit your missile off the rail and get to them so that you don't die. Mm. And if you need 58 steps, you have less or more or less a second per step. Yeah. And that means that you start immediately and you do no mistake or you're dead. Right? Yeah. <laughs> the pressure situation. So, of, yeah. yeah, that's kind of a shitty situation. <laughs> right? So I, I brought it down to, for most cases, about 12 to 15 steps. Right. There were a few little, if it's this color, then click this. If it's this color, then do this. So 12 to 15 instead of 58. That gives you maybe a little bit of an idea, right? There was all, everybody had the best intentions. We had told them, give us as much flexibility. And they listened 
but they gave us then ultimately so much input that you couldn't really realistically handle it anymore, let alone if you ever hit the wrong button or something that you screwed, right? So, and with 12 to 15, you could make a mistake, hit the reset button, still do it again and still be in time to be safe. Besides the fact that you really needed to train to do this almost like with half an eye because there's still a plane to fly. Right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that's kind of like, I think, a pretty good example on, on, on what the task is, not just learning and understanding what the black box is for, the user panel is for, but how can you make it so that it is integrated? That's what we always said is the main word in this whole game is there is a plane that's given to you. There's a purpose for that plane that's given to you. When you want to put new stuff on it, on the outside or in the cockpit, how do you integrate it in a way that you don't end up overloading the person who's supposed to use all of that. Yeah. So essentially we've got something where there's uh, lots of information flying around, but that doesn't necessarily make it easy to use. So how do you get that uh, complicated information and turn it into something that is uh, easily usable by the person that's actually doing it? Not too no. dissimilar. And what you're doing with property, in fact. <laughs> Yeah, in, in a way, exactly. There's, that, there's a par plenty of parallel information there. around, but it uh, but it's quite complicated if you don't know. And you're what you're trying to do is help people understand it at a simple level. Yeah, and I'm I'm sure you and your audience have heard this kind of sometimes funny saying. You know, there's a thousand roads that lead to Rome, and that is a little bit in the, in that way. You know, was it really for this analogy with uh, or this uh, this example with that little user panel for the missile? was 12 or 15 the right number could we have done it all kinds of different ways yes ultimately it was up to these very few people to decide and make a recommendation and ultimately the, the manufacturer could have said no we don't do this one or we want to do this differently but they ultimately that was a really collaborative relationship and when you translate that to the mentoring we do for the for the investors or the people that want to become real estate investors the goal to this time freedom point is in the vast majority of cases the same. Mm. We want to have a relatively short period of time during which we gain more and more understanding on how we can generate more and more passive income ultimately to the point where we don't really need to worry about where's money coming from. Yes. But that is kind of like the saying a thousand roads lead to Rome. I can't, and, and I've been doing it for a while, there's not so far been one that looks close to the other, not one. Yeah, exactly. There's so many different ways of doing it. It's finding the right way for the individual. Or yeah, and, and I mean, there are twists and turns as well, right? Like, I mean, if we want to transition to that and, and not go necessarily back to the, to the um, history, one of the things, for example, happened, a person came to me and said, okay, I want X, number to be my time freedom point number meaning like how much should come in per month from my investments which indicated to me that that person by the amount of time which was like less than six years which is pretty fast if you think about it when you don't have any properties right now and the number was pretty high indicated to me okay by this high number this short period of time you need to find really well performing properties and so I went out and said, okay, well, I work with certain organizations that have these really well-performing properties. So let's focus on that. How does that sound? And she said, oh yeah, that sounds good, right? So I talked to my guys and we put a little portfolio of properties together. 
that would have allocated the available money and would have gotten us about two thirds of the way to that number and then the rest would have happened over time. And then literally every single one of those properties didn't, and I'm maybe a little early here, tickle her taste buds, right? And what I mean by that is she looked at them, she could see intellectually by the numbers that yes, they performed exceptionally well, in some cases, even better than what I give as like the starting framework to when you on your own go online and look around and what should you be looking for? There were some that performed even better than that. And she said, but they're so ugly. <laughs> and my first reaction was nobody asked you to move in. <laughs> and ultimately she just couldn't do it, you know? Um, and it's understandable. I mean, you want to have certain pride of ownership and I totally get that. And I'm looking for that too. But you get into situations where you have to say, how can I get myself to really be focused on the goal? And how much am I willing to forego some of my preconceived notions or my views? Or can I adjust them? Or can I park them maybe somewhere on the side to not have to influence me too much? But in some cases like this, maybe being a little bit of an extreme case, if you know you own something, you spend a ton of money, even though most of it is finance, on something that you say, but I don't like it. There are people, like in her case, where she said, I, I just can't see myself owning this. Mm. And I said, well, then we need to find something else. It will take either a little longer or it will um, not reach that number in your given time frame because something has to give. But I didn't either want to force her into something just because the numbers work. Yeah. 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 Right? And that is, you know, when people say, well, are you basically just telling people what to do? And, and I'm very adamant to say, no, that's, that's not the thing. The thing is partially, that's why I also say coaching and mentoring. The coaching part is trying to help people that know what they want to adjust their behavior to make that happen. And the mentoring is just shorten the time of, knowing and learning something because I've done every little thing that I mentor people about. I've done literally everything myself. Mm. The relationships that I refer people into are all the relationships that I formed. And people have oftentimes said, well, isn't that a little crazy if you limit yourself to only the things that you've done your, yourself before? And maybe it is a little crazy, but I have to say this has been the best for me to make sure that people get treated the right way, that they get the right way, and that when something isn't quite 100% obvious or clear or, or a little bit different than anticipated, I've been there, I've most likely worked myself through the same situation, and then I can help them. Yeah. Right? And so yes, it, it can be a little bit limiting, but I really enjoy it. And I think part of the reason why people actually come and ask for the help that, that I and my team provide is because they know anything we talk about. I can say, hey, look at my house there. Look at my investment there. This is the, these are the options for lending. These are the options for insurance. These are the options for your corporate structure and stuff. And most of the time, it, very early on, the question is, so how have you done it? And then I talk about how I done it. And then we need to look if, should it or would it make sense to do it exactly the same way or maybe slightly different? <laughs> As you say, there's, there's there's lots of different ways. I mean, as you say, it's a thousand ways just within your own 
thing yeah. and I did at the start there's there's lots of other routes but i think there's a lot of credibility as you say when you when you have done these things um that that, that i think people are looking for because it's a there's risk involved and people are nervous about it and that kind of thing so it feels a lot better when you know it's hand in hand going through well-trodden paths rather than uh, venturing out in new territories <laughs> yeah, absolutely and one thing that i find and and uh, it's maybe a little annoyance detectable in my voice when i talk about that but in the financial industry i find more and more people get caught either giving advice or which i find even worse being asked uh, for example on tv on like investment shows or or like um, somebody I really like on YouTube, he calls it CNBS, you know, instead of CNBS, <laughs> <laughs> you know, on any one of those shows, um, they come on and they are being asked to give a commentary on some, some development in the stock market or some development with a company or whether they should buy or hold or short the stock or, or, or buy, get into that type investment class or not. And, and they spill all kinds of what sounds like information and they always get introduced as like one of the experts mm -hmm. right? and then somebody like me who is a little bit maybe more German than I should be goes and says okay let's look at this stock analyst that was just praised on CNBS like this where does he rank because it's very easy you go online and you look stock analyst ranking and he ranks 7455 out of 7800 <laughs> oh yeah that's the guy I want to listen to and then you look at, does he own anything of the stuff that he just talked about? The answer is no, yeah. right? And that's, to me, that's very aggravating. And I feel really sometimes agitated that so many people are led to believe that they should listen to these guys. And we don't really learn much unless you're a scientist or something. To any time you take something that you pick up, wherever it may come from to you, to the extent that you say, now I want to take action in that direction to really do some due diligence, right? In that literal sense, like a scientist would say, okay, I heard that the earth is not the center of the universe. Let's check that out first, not just go with the assumption because somebody said so. Yeah. Right? And that, I don't know why, but I find oftentimes people either didn't learn it in school or, or um, never had the need for it or stuff like that. And so this, this person said so and this person was elevated on this pedestal is pretty much the only thing that makes me now wanting to go into this direction yeah right and that's why i find the starting point when where we talked earlier to be so different <clears throat> because most of the people that come to me are not in their 20s or early 30s they're a little bit more mature and so there's a history of what have they done before with their money and when i say okay why did you do this one or why did you do that one in many, many cases, somebody told me so, or I heard this here and there, right? And the next question obviously is, okay, so then you looked into it and you liked it and that, no, I just did it. It's oftentimes <laughs> the answer, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and especially when you get more mature, the opportunity to screw up gets less and less, right? And so that's why I feel a huge responsibility to really be an educator as well, to say, I wanna to explain to you why we're doing this, not necessarily to the nth degree, but so that you really have a good understanding and what I really, why I'm really doing it is I always make a huge point out of the fact that ultimately anybody who comes from my help still needs to retain and I really insist 
it needs to be your decision. We can go over it, we can look at it, we can shine, or like my friend David Corbin says, illuminate it from all kinds of different ways. So you have the best possible way to say, is it really what I want to do? But it's ultimately your decision, mm -hmm. right? And, and when you feel that you only make the decision because it sounded good or somebody supposedly knows what they're talking about, there are too many cases where I've seen that people ultimately regret it. Yeah, I think there's there's too many situations, and it's not just property, all sorts of things, where one, you want it to be easy. Don't yeah. have to, you know, you know the, the, the magic wand approach, the win the lottery concepts. It's like, can, can I get what I want without putting too much work in? Right. Um, and two, taking responsibility for one's own actions. Um, as you say, if, if uh, well, if he tells me that and it's wrong, at least it's not my fault. I can blame him. Um, yeah, which is cool as long as your livelihood doesn't depend on it. Right? Yeah, I'm not saying it's cool. I mean, that's that's why people behave like this because they're not taking responsibility for their own actions and they're ultimately being lazy. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, like it's cool if you can blame someone. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't get you very far. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Well, and for me, I mean, in, in a way, if I if I go back quickly uh, or for a short moment to how did we end up here? Yeah, was, I mean, I, mean, I, 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 I um, ultimately, you know, got old and my body didn't want to do the pulling G's and flying stuff anymore. And so the option was, as we call it in the Air Force, you could fly a desk or you can retire. And <laughs> even though I'm in front of a computer every day, but I didn't want to fly an Air Force desk, right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. so I retired and um, that was uh, in 2001. And anybody who knows a little bit of, of history knows that was pretty much the time right around the worst stock market crash. I first got recruited into a company as an employee and I found pretty quickly, you know, that wasn't my thing. So I started my own business, but that also brought the question Still in Germany at this point, by the way. No, no, this was. I, oh, yeah, I didn't. I didn't tell the audience that stuff. So I did the test. Uh, the te right, right. I did the test flying. Came over to the US a lot of times, and my wife said, "You know, it would be nice if we could stay here a little longer than just four to six weeks at a time. Isn't there a way something you know a little more substantial, especially in California?" And so I looked into it, and <laughs> there's a little. I'm already smiling about it. Um, so I found out there is actually a long-standing exchange program between the U.S. Air Force and the German Air Force, where you literally take on the job of the other person. So I became the assistant director of operation of a flight uh, fighter wing for F-111 planes in the U.S. Air Force, and the guy that took that, whose job I took became the, uh, the um, deputy commander of a flight school, which was my role at the time. And when I got the paper, just to explain why I was smiling, I got the paper. It said, you are going to be assigned to Clovis, uh, um, to the Air Force Base. There was um, Cannon Air Force Base, Clovis. And I'm like, where the heck is Clovis? So I'm getting out my, you know, my old uh, Atlas to try to find Clovis. And there was no such thing as, as jumping on the internet at the time. And I'm looking and looking and looking in the United States and I find Clovis in California, pretty close to Yosemite. Now I looked at the location and said, hmm, I don't see anything that looks like an airport close by. But I said to my wife, Mouse, can you believe it? It's actually in California. 
And then I was asked to go there to find housing, like kind of like a house finder trip. And it was smelly like heck in, 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 in a desert town, literally three miles from what's called the west edge of Texas. And, and it was Clovis, New Mexico and not Clovis, California. Um, kind of made much more sense. Um, but yeah, so it was still in the United States, like uh, on the right island, so to speak, right? It's, there's 3000 roads to california so. yeah yeah, yeah. And actually i mean that that what what i was very very fortunate because normally an exchange thing like that takes about two to three years mm. and towards the end of my stint peace had broken out in europe and germany and the united states decided to move a lot of that flight training stuff that was happening in europe out of out of that densely populated area and they asked me because i as i said came from a flight school background they said we want you to be the program manager to build a flight training center in the united states and it happened to be in the same state of new mexico so they said okay you've been there already two and a half years you speak the language know the u.s system everything we transfer you 300 miles to this other air force base which happened to be the one with the stealth fighter and um and my overall time went from two and a half years to six years. I'm probably one of the people with the longest assignment in, in out of country in the Air Force. And then we had been so much time in the US and my daughter had basically gone her whole school life in the US that I basically just said, is there a way to stay? Right. And then this company said, yeah, we hire you. And I said, well, you can only hire me if you also give me the immigration stuff, your green card and what have you. And um, they did that. And like I said, I found out that wasn't really the right thing long-term for me. So in 2005, I actually started my own business, but I had already between 2001 and, and 2005, because this company had no retirement plan, so to speak, started looking, okay, what can I do? Because I knew this, this pension money from the Air Force would not for the rest of my life be enough mm. to sustain us. What can I do to have basically what I today now call the time freedom point, how can I get there for myself? And like I said, I mean, the stock market was completely collapsing with the dot-com bubble. And so the question was, what else is there if not stocks? Because everybody was only talking at the time about stocks and stocks can never go down. They only go up and all that stuff. And yeah, and so then I looked around and I, I said this earlier, but I, I think it's worth repeating. I looked around to say, People I know, what do they do yeah. that they not necessarily talk so much about? And you might chuckle a little um, because people have actually, I chuckle maybe more than you because people had said, when I say, I'll be back, that would be, you know, very close to how the real thing sounds. <laughs> but the, the funny part or the interesting part is this guy, Arnold, was at the time one of the largest private real estate investors in the state of California. So he sucked a lot of the money he made with the movies way before he ever became governor or anything like that and bought real estate yeah. and did fabulous with it. And then I looked a little further because I, I knew Arnold, that was something, you know, who do you know that it kind of like what name? And then I found other people and they all did the same thing in some way, shape or form. And that for me meant, okay, I need to learn more about it. I need to see how, how they do it. I always initially thought they do it probably at a level when they have millions and millions and millions to invest that would never work for me. Come to find out that's really not true. And it's also not how most of these people started. 
Mm. Um, and it's not because they didn't have more money than I had, but they were just as um, inquisitive to say, well, I don't want to put all my money that I just made into one thing and hoping it's going to work. I start small and if it works, I grow. And that's what I have done and that's what all our clients do. Even when somebody sells this expensive house, and like I mentioned earlier, we didn't just take that seven-figure seven number and threw it all in, into one thing. Yeah. Right. So yeah, that's how I actually ended up getting kind of into real estate. And what what I so learned. You, what so sorry, just uh, you looked around, you saw that was a thing uh, that you wanted to do. So how did you actually get started into the process? Was it a case of self-taught, making mistakes and goes along? Were you tapping into other mentors and sort of thing, reading books. How are you getting your well, own? I mean, there was there was a guy, I, I forgot his name. It's actually embarrassing that I don't remember his name, but uh, who sold little cassette tapes about how to uh, invest in real estate uh, with, with little or no money, I think was the, was the slogan. And so, like I said, I mean, for people today, it's probably hard to imagine, even though it's only 25 years ago, but internet like we know where we just jump on and get all the information we want and then some wasn't that easily available so you really needed to dig i went to the library and looked at books i um i went to you know actual yeah workshops i guess we would call them there weren't webinars there were in-person things where you got on a plane um to be with a thousand people in a room and stuff like that but for me what what i wanted to know is or understand is what are the options and what gives me the best chance? And one thing that is probably important in this context is due to the military career and being moved from location to location, we had already in the past had a few times been in the situation to say, should we rent something or should we buy it? Like when I got moved into this program manager position for the flight training center, there were ultimately 800 German families to come into a town area of 25,000 people, right? And so there was a building boom fundamentally going on. And I said, okay, well, I'm kind of like the leader of this whole thing. I should be an example and do the same thing that we ultimately asked the community to accept for all these people that we're bringing. So I had a house custom built and, and we owned that. And when I then retired from the military and moved it wasn't the best time to sell that house right so we ended up saying okay well then we rent it and we became kind of in a sense an accidental landlord that was maybe to some extent also a trigger to say well we kind of in a way we didn't really ever at the time call it an investment property but if i were to use now common terminology it was literally our first investment property it was just a practical and so, made sense at the time. Otherwise, you'd have lost. And, yeah, and 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 for a lot of people, what I can say now, what happens is you either have a similar circumstance where either through your employer moves you around, or you don't like to live in the area anymore that you're in, but you you own a place that you lived in yourself. Now you're moving away and you're renting it, or the other scenario um, that happens is that you're selling this place but you don't need the whole amount of money to get another place mm. there is in the u.s tax code something called the 1031 exchange and 1031 is just a paragraph in the u.s tax code which basically says if you sell something that was an investment property like my house there in new mexico 
So I'm not occupying it anymore. I had it rented for a while and now I'm selling it. If you use the money from that and buy another house or several other houses, then you don't have to pay any taxes on the gain that you made on that house. Mm. Right? And so you might actually gotten into that situation that you moved away into a new location, but you rented the place you occupied and then you're selling it and then you're exchanging it into another property or several other properties in a different location, right? And so oftentimes that's how people's portfolios, if you so to speak, Start up. get started. It's not so much to say, I mean, there are some people who say, okay, I'm sitting here, I like where I am, now I wanna invest. But it's also similarly likely for someone to say, okay, I used to live there, I rented it, now I wanna sell it or I wanna use the money and do something with it. Those are kind of the two starting points. Mm. No, 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 very, very good. And, and um, sorry, just out of interest to, to go back a little bit, when, when you said that you started up your own business in 2001 and they were looking at the property, what, was you, what business were you actually doing? You weren't going straight into property. Well, the, the, no, the, the interesting thing was I, ha having had like decades of experience in the military, flying, aviation, all that kind of stuff, I thought I would probably be a good consultant in the aviation space mm. or aerospace. And I tried that to be to be that, mm. and um, I didn't know how to how to get clients. Right, so I thought, well, what would be an alternative if you have never in your life sold or marketed anything? And I thought, well, how about if I offer what I know and what I can do to somebody who knows how to do this and doesn't have enough people to deliver? And so I found a company on the on the east coast whole self-learning was what they called themselves. And they were providing this kind of like consulting slash education services to really large companies where I always thought I would never have a chance to get in there anyways. But he had developed really good relationships with some big ones and he knew as long as he kept them happy, he would always have business. He just needed to have enough people to deliver. So I went through a, a little bit almost like an interview process and then got enrolled into this. and. <laughs> My thought that I would do this for the aviation industry where I had tons and tons and tons and decades of experience was squashed by one of my pretty earliest assignments was for Merck Pharmaceuticals. Yeah. And the, the story I tell is that I still believe that sometime of these many, many, many times that I flew to Pennsylvania to do some kind of consulting or training for Merck, somebody came into that hotel suite and tattooed in visible ink life science industry on my forehead. And ever since, as long as I've done consulting, I've been consulting in the life science industry. And when people say, how did you get into this? I said, well, I flew airplanes and then I do this. And they're like, no way, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, so yeah, that's basically what I first started doing with the intention to use all this vast information I had all they wanted, and I mean, there was a little bit of usefulness because I had done a lot of training as, a, as an instructor, as a flight instructor in aviation. So I knew how to train people, yeah. right? That's the only thing that transferred. The content was completely irrelevant. <laughs> so, and I'm still doing that a little bit on the side, basically. I'm still helping life science companies, especially smaller ones. It's interesting because in, I mean, this is another almost 20 years now, um, they're still making similar mistakes and have similar struggles like they had when I started. 
And this is actually when people say, oh, if you, Andrew, if you ask me, why did you get into this real estate thing in a little bit more professional way is I super, super enjoy the transformation that people go through from being a person with interest in investing to reach their time freedom point to on, while they are on the ideal investor journey, they also become professional investors and business owners. And, and, and it's so enjoyable to see that transformation, especially when you then compare to in the life science industry, I get a call and somebody said, oh, we have this tremendous problem. Let me explain. And then they rattle through all the issues and we need somebody who can help us. And somebody said, you know how to help people and organizations with that. And I say, oh, thank you for asking. And I'm so glad that you call. And my head says, couldn't you have asked somebody? This is like the 150th time that I hear that same list. Right? And you, it, it's not that helping that particular organization or group of people is not as enjoyable. It's just you would say, well, isn't this industry, this, this complex of issues ever evolving? And you compare and contrast that to the people I work with in the, in the uh, real estate stuff, where it's, it's super cool to see how they evolve, how they transition, how they transform, how they become literally different people financially, but also mindset, joy for life, living your passion and that kind of stuff. It's just, that's, you know, that's so cool. And, and every single time it's so cool. And then I get a call and it's, oh man, one of those again, you know. I think, you know, that's the difference between an individual and a big company, isn't it? Or the pleasure of working as an individual, you say, because um people can make decisions that they can shift and change whereas large corporations is so slow to shift anything or change anything yeah absolutely and it's it's kind of a funny thing because when i say this to my wife you know i just had another one of those calls and she said well we shouldn't forget to be grateful that we keep getting these calls because for a long time they paid all the bills right and allowed us to build our real estate investing portfolio you know so that is you know i every once in a while need that reminder but on the other hand when you say you know how do you transition from like doing a then doing b which is totally different than doing c which is again quite different and i guess you know the best way i can describe it is the impact which is something that I've always been looking for, right? The impact that, that what we do together when we build a real estate portfolio is so much more profound than anything that I've ever done before. And that's, you know, I, I want to keep doing that pretty much for the rest of my days. Yeah, again, you directly connect to that individual, you can see the impact that it has. It's, uh, it's more noticeable. Well, and it's also, you know, you, there's a certain energy that comes back when you have a success and it can be just, okay, we've secured that property and it actually, you know, we did the closing and now I actually got my first rent check and now I actually see my first cash flow in my bank account and stuff. There are all these little, what John Cotter calls celebrate the small wins. Yeah. Right? And when you do this with 10 people, there's almost small wins to celebrate at least once a week. Right? It's just cool. Yeah. So um, just take, so obviously, as you say, you've, you've, you've had your consulting business and then you've been building your property portfolio, learning and self-learning in many ways through cassettes, books, et cetera, as you go along. How did it shift to doing property, to coaching and mentoring property? Well, what basically happened is, and I think that is pretty much a, 
almost I would call it like a human nature evolution is when you do certain things and they work out, or even sometimes when they don't work out, you have a, um, I don't know if you call it a sphere of influence or a group of people that you kind of hang out with, um, you know, in nowadays social media wise, you would say, you know, you like your community, so to speak, um, which gives you opportunities where people say, you know, tell me what happened last week or how was your year or how was your month and so forth. And I'm, you know, because this was so different than what other people knew me for, I told them, you know, like, oh, I just closed on another property and that's going to increase my income by $200 a month, right? And people said, okay, well, how does that work? You know, like, you, what do you have to do for that? And I said, well, it's passive. That's why it's called passive income, right? I went through all the steps and there are all these people that do all that job and I, at the end, collect the money. And they're like, what? That, that exists, right? And then I did this 1031 exchange thing once where I had bought a property and it's it's a funny little story i buy the property in in new mexico and it was in a neighborhood that wasn't that easily accessible and first the city bought built one of these huge business routes around the city so the traffic that didn't really want to get into downtown was routed around it which also routed it to one of the largest employers in the whole neighborhood but there was no off ramp to get to the neighborhood where my house was so we rented it, it was fine, you know, when we didn't live there. And then the, the um, re real estate agent from the company who managed it for me calls me and said, do you want to sell your house? And I'm like, why would I want to sell my house? She says, well, they built the off-ramp and it shot up in price. I think it would be a good idea to sell it. I said, tell me more. She said, well, I looked into our numbers, you know, when you bought it and stuff. You got it for 200,000 two years ago, it's at least 280 to 300 now. I said, this is New Mexico. I've never heard that anything in increased in value that much. She said, well, yeah, but now that the off-ramp is there, everybody wants to live in that neighborhood. I said, okay, well, you know, you shouldn't be asked too many times, so go ahead and try. And she sold it as she promised within a week. Right. So now, but then the thing was, okay, so suddenly I had this money and I needed to do that 1031 exchange that I had told other people about. And so when I did it and told other people about it, I said, oh, you can do that. I never heard about that. And so these little stories added together, like, like pearls on a string, in a sense, kept people say, well, you should let other people know in a more, I don't know, professional or, or official way, not just when we happenstance come together and talk about it or somebody asks you well and then i dabbled with it in 2019 and then mr and mrs uh cerveza no corona actually said you know you have time now and so then we started to put it up all a little bit more professionally it was there you know all along but it wasn't like a real website and real systems and real um you know like scheduling systems and all that kind of stuff yeah and and now, I mean, like I said, before we started recording, um, we have established it in a way that we can help a limited number of people in this kind of handholding way. And I'm pretty proud to say, I mean, it's one thing when you have all the credentials in the United States as a citizen or as a permanent resident, you can do a lot of things within the system. And it was always a goal for me to also allow people from outside the US to take advantage of this very stable but also very profitable real estate market 
And so that's what we have done basically mostly last year is uh, helping Canadians. We have a German, we have somebody from the UK, we have somebody from Spain, you know, because it's a little more complicated, but it's possible. And the returns in comparison for what you need to put in and what you can get out is still better than any place or almost any place. Well, any place in Central Europe, I should say, you know, anything like UK, Germany, any Scandinavian countries or stuff like that, where real estate has gotten so expensive, but it doesn't perform. And here in the US, it has increased in price as well, but you still find opportunities where it performs. So you only work with investments in the US, but you can work with people outside of the US who wants to buy US properties. No, um, the majority is in the US, but I also, for example, for myself and now also for, for clients, um, I've always been interested in protecting the environment. So one of the investment options for international is eco-friendly tiny houses in, in the Caribbean, for example. In, like I'm currently getting one built in Panama, but we also have um, projects that I help people get into in Belize, in Nicaragua, Honduras, um bahamas we wanted to do one which i was really excited about in in argentina because a huge fan of malbec right so i thought <laughs> okay please put it right next to a winery but the, the guy who owned the land wanted too much for it so <laughs> probably other people had a similar idea um exactly <laughs> so talk me about more about the the eco home sort of thing how that sort of works in terms of well the idea is basically the building is basically created with the intention of being off-grid, but the village itself, I call it a village, is like a, a grouping of probably anywhere between 25 and maybe in the end 60, 70 tiny houses with then the common area and like gym and restaurant and that kind of stuff. They are ultimately still connected to the grid, but they could operate off-grid and have battery and solar panels and that stuff and using eco-friendly materials, but from a construct, you have basically a property that is anywhere between 150 and 200,000 for the most part dollars um, to purchase. And the way it works is a, it, it basically is a phase like you would do a housing development phase, a phase within the resort or within the village, let's say of 10 or 20 of those little houses. And people can basically buy them and get financing for them. And when the phase is sold, then there is an established um, contracting company who is actually building all of them, typically within about eight months. And then that is also connected to a management company. And then you have two options. Um, it used to be only one option, but there is now a second option. The, the traditional option is you as the owner have somewhere one, two, three weeks, you can choose that you want to use it yourself for just vacationing there, right? And the rest of the time, the management company is basically using all the common ways on attracting guests to stay there. They manage it, they collect the pay, they do the marketing and so forth and so forth. The split is typically 25-75. So they get 25% of the uh, re revenue they generate, you get 75%. When you really have nothing else to do, then visit once a year and you're not required, but you should. It's a business trip, right? So <laughs> because you have to look after your investments, right? So tax yeah, deductible and everything. Who, who gets a tax deductible vacation, right? So, um, so yeah, so you should actually go at least for a week or two 
And then the rest of the time it's managed uh, externally and the money just basically goes either to a local bank account or any bank account that you tell them to send it to. The other option is new, and that is what's called digital nomads, where people say, hey, I want to check out for a while. I have a job or I'm doing something that I can do pretty much from anywhere. This is one of the reasons why all these little tiny house villages have really good internet so that somebody can say, okay, for a year, I just, after the thing is finished, I'm just going to hang out there literally live there in the village and work from there and if i don't like that island anymore then i turn it over to management mm -hmm. so those are the two options the first one always existed the second one is relatively new but it's interesting that more and more people now that we had this work from home mandate uh, find out that they could do their job pretty much from anywhere and the only limiting factor can sometimes be the time zone yeah and the quality so, of the <laughs> yeah, but, right. yeah. <laughs> but I mean, we, we're trying for, and, and I'm not doing this myself, but they're all very, very eager to get Starlink, right? Because that's pretty much the best internet in remote or relatively remote locations you can get. So I don't know. Are you familiar with like Elon Musk Starlink? Uh, no, not really. Okay, <laughs> Starlink, but... Star, is it Starlink, when you say Starlink, it's a um it's a, an online bank in the uk so oh okay no and what i'm talking about is um, most people have probably heard about elon musk and he is the boss for two companies tesla and spacex and spacex in the last three years has shot up a little bit more than two thousand satellites and these satellites are building basically a, a, a network around the globe and they, they give you a chance if you have a little antenna imagine about the size of a pizza and you put that on your roof and you, the antenna is basically tracking the satellite and you have high speed internet, almost not quite fiber optic, but close. Wow. And, 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 and it's always there because the satellites are always there. Right. So and if you put a little solar panel next to it, it even works when your power supplier doesn't want to give you electricity. Right. So but if you imagine you put this like in Panama into a little eco village by the by the coast or in the mountains and you put that pizza dish up. You know, as long as you're okay with your time zone, you probably better internet there than most other places um, that claim to have good internet. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. No. So that's that's kind of one of the options. I mean, um, that's out of the outside of the U.S. And then in the U.S., it's really a matter of what you're looking for mm. within the residential real estate frame. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 obviously, the, uh, you're now familiar with the processes and the legislation, the systems within America. A lot of the stuff, the basic concepts are going to be universally applicable, I suspect. It's just finding the individual local tax and legal rules to, 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 to work with to make sure it's most efficient, isn't it? Yeah, and the biggest one, what I've learned and what is probably when I talk about the frame one of the core components of the frame that I'm working in and that I'm helping people within is the term turnkey. Mm -hmm. It is basically in, from a real estate perspective, a play on the, the word that most people know, know as outsourcing, right? So if you say, I wanna have a passive income portfolio of assets, then the word passive is the main driver and that is directly related to the turnkey part. 
-hmm. So when I said earlier that little eco-village tiny house in Panama is completely, it's built by an organization. The same organization is going to manage it. They're going marketing sales. They do the cleaning. They change the sheets and anything, anything and everything. So I only need to own it and I only need to do the financial transactions. And the same thing when uh, any of our clients or myself, we buy anything anywhere in the United States, it's always turnkey. And that, that makes it possible for one, for the investor to be pretty much anywhere. And if you ask yourself, I mean, why did I start it this way from a business design perspective is I live in San Diego, which is one of the most expensive areas. So from an investing perspective, it doesn't perform well, right? Because performance, when the goal is I want to make income from my investments, it's not does it increase in value. That's nice, but it doesn't pay you anything. Right? It's basically equity sitting there doing nothing. Well, so I need performance and performance mean, as an example, I need um, like one of our clients just bought a $120,000 house with two, one bedroom, one bath apartments in it. They split it basically in two units. It's going to pay her $1,400 a month for $120,000 investment. That's better than 1%. That means she's going to basically have something like 400 or maybe even $500 a month in cash flow. That's good performance. Now, guess she's in San Francisco. This thing is somewhere in Ohio. It has to be turnkey. There is no way that she could take a call and say the faucet is dripping. Yeah, she could take the call, but it wouldn't make any difference. Right? So buying it, renovating it, selling it to her, appraising it, managing it, fixing it if anything breaks all of that needs to be outsourced to the turnkey provider yeah, yeah and the trick in a sense or why what is the secret source and i don't really think it's that secret but the the special source that we're doing is to find really dependable well-performing turnkey providers because there are a lot of organizations who call themselves that but when you really say okay you found the property you renovated it with your team not outsourced you did it then you gave it a price that the external appraisal actually meets or exceeds. We got financing on it because it meets all the criteria and your internal management team is going to handle it for me as soon as I have closed on it. When you make that little list, it's like almost deflating a balloon. The number of remaining turnkey providers gets pretty small. Right? And so that's what we try to do is um, find more of those. It's not that many. I only use four right now, different ones. And there's a fifth one in the running, but we have not been able to find a performing property and I'm not giving it to any of our clients until I tried it. Um, so those, that's basically what we do, both international as well as in the US and mainly to serve this purpose to say, it's not just in the phase while I'm on my ideal investor journey to get to my time freedom point, but you also wanna say, okay, and this is a little bit of a thing that I'm trying to get better at in 2022 is we shouldn't forget that this time freedom point that we're working towards is basically the starting point of your new life, mm. your passion filled life. But from your investment portfolio, it only means you reach this milestone from which your passive income will continue to grow. It's not that you suddenly get rid of your properties or your turnkey providers or your management or stuff like that. It's just now the number that comes in every month has reached the goal level. 
but you still have your portfolio, you still have the opportunity to add to it, you will definitely increase your cash flow or your passive income. And, you know, when somebody comes and says, okay, like I just got a message yesterday where somebody said, I'm in my mid forties and I read a bunch of stuff and listened to a couple of podcasts you've been on. And I think I want to see if this is something for me, right? And depending, I don't know her yet. I don't know where she is, but let's say she is an average kind of starting point. Then it's going to take her probably about 10 years to get to that time freedom point. So then she's in her mid fifties and for the rest of her life, she can basically play. Mm, and it's only that's the beauty about it it's only going to get better yeah from a financial perspective yeah. and when people say well what about inflation i always say well that makes me smile my properties gain in value seven percent or whatever is, is in the uk or in europe right now the inflation five percent plus what on top of what they would get more valuable anyway mm. right so most of our properties and this is pretty crazy i'm sometimes hesitant to say it but if you really run the numbers including all the tech stuff and so forth you're anywhere between 20 and 30 percent return mm. and that's just crazy i mean it's not going to be that way forever but that's pretty sweet right and and you would be hard pressed to find something that that's secure that's safe um but if you know seven like here in the US, as of December, it's seven percent of that twenty percent is it's just inflation. Yeah, but the say it's inflation proof because it's going to go up with it. So there's a difference between the cash flow and the asset holding, isn't it? Because property value can go up and down, but you don't care because it's it's the it's the rental cash flow that's the the key thing, and that goes up. With yeah, but that's true. But if you think about it, um, inflation means stuff gets more expensive. People who work have less money to pay for that more expensive stuff. So they go to their boss and say, I need more money, boss. And part of that is not just, I need more money to buy the stuff in the grocery store, but part of that is also my landlord has increased the rent. And my landlord could be Andrew, could be Axel, could be Jennifer, could be anybody right that owns properties. And it's not because we are, we are nasty to people or stuff like that. It's just in line with what's happening in the economic environment mm. right and i so if everything gets more expensive this this old saying you know a flood is raising all boats is true the the really cool thing is when you really look at it you buy a property and you put a 30-year mortgage on and for these 30 years if you do nothing else you will every month pay the same amount but if you say my i increase the rent from let's say $1,000 a month for a little house by $30 a year, right? In 10 years, you make $300 more cash flow. Everything else, your mortgage is still the same. And for the next 20 years, it's still going to be the same. And you keep doing your $30 a month, which would make you a really appreciated landlord. Yeah. You really yeah, keep only doing $30 a month, right? Nobody will say, oh, Andrew is a nasty guy or stuff for increasing my rent by $30 or 30 pounds a month a year, every year. Yeah. But when, when you know that 100% or almost 100% goes into your cash flow and you don't just look at this for one property, right? Like we're building a portfolio. Most people to get to that time freedom point need anywhere between 10 and 15 properties, right? So if you have between 10 and 15 properties, that's year one, $300 to $450 more per month. Next year, it's $300 plus the one before. So you're already nine. Can you see how that works? Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So 
Now nobody has the 10 properties right away. That takes a while too. But that's why I'm saying people sometimes are shocked when they actually reach their time freedom point and say, okay, let's just project what happens in the next three to five years. And we run the numbers just apply what has happened just before the last three to five years. It's like, really? <laughs> I'm making 4,000 now and I will make 6,000 in three to five years because it's not a linear thing when your cost remains the same, but your income keeps increasing more than linear. Yeah, yeah. And because most of any increase goes right into your pocket. Yeah, absolutely. And then and, you know, going back to what you say, that, that, that point of the, the way you hit your time uh, freedom goal, um, it, it, it moves people to that space of where um, they've got choices at the end of the day. They don't, they don't have oh, yeah. to do anything. They can do whatever, not whatever they want, but essentially life becomes a choice rather than a have to. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> the reason I, I chose that term is if you were to translate it, what does it really mean? It means you have the freedom to use the time for whatever you want to. Mm. And it's the most valuable commodity we all have. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <clears throat> a whole different discussion about what we do with that time, but that's uh, you got to get to that point first. Absolutely <laughs> <laughs> fine. Uh, where, where did well, Going, going forwards, you, is it sort of more of the same for you? Um, have you got plans to sort of, because like you say, is, is there any small number of people you work with in itself? What's your sort of plans for the future for yourself? Well, one of the things that I want to do is I want to kind of like uh, structure the ideal investor journey a little bit more so that things that people would be interested in to learn or should learn or need to know can be more absorbed in the form of little videos or little vignettes or little educational packages, right? Where I can say, okay, somebody says, okay, my issue is that I'm not really quite sure how much I should um, pay, for example, or what is a reasonable amount to pay for insurance, right? If I, I want to get to the point by the end of this year where I have a little thing to say, okay, well, here, I sent you the link, do that little thing. It takes you maybe 20, 30 minutes, a video with a little bit of explanation. What are the different variables? What is the deductible? How high should it be? And what is it when I move this number or that number, what would be the impact? And here's what we do, now you can decide, right? And so next time when for any of their future properties with that information, they would know what to ask the insurance person that I refer them to, but they can also pick their own what should it be? And the same thing for inspections, the same thing for if it's an international investor, you need to set up a, a little LLC, right? So that the company can buy the property. That's kind of American law and external international person needs to own the business inside of an LLC or some sort of company. I have done this. I have this all myself, tried it. So we can show you in a little vignette, how do I set up a business? How do I get a bank account without having to go into any branch office? And then I can go to the people that sell the property, the turnkey provider and say, here's my company, here's my bank account, here's how, how we rock and roll, mm. right? And so instead of, you know, over and over every new time, somebody comes and says, okay, this is my scenario. This is what I want to do or need to do to have to do this again. It, I hope to gain efficiency and maybe in the future have the ability to add a few more people every year by being able to say, hey, just do this and then come back to me if you have any questions. And I hope if I do it right, then they should have very few questions. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's an iterative process, isn't it? Because every time you get a question and it's just another thing to add to the instruction. Right, and I want to focus my time to really come up with, with 
very custom fitting as perfect as possible solutions for their situation but a, a bunch of the things like the insurance thing the lending thing the funding thing and stuff they don't change and they're not really necessarily my influence i make the connection and i make recommendations for the specific case but i am not going to change the insurance industry or the lending industry or the mortgage industry or all these these kind of providers that we need to do our thing to to do, flow through our process yeah no no that sounds uh, sounds good fantastic um I've got a key questions to ask you, but actually I've got two key questions. It's a bit different for you, Axel, this time. <laughs> You're a right, special right. person. I'll ask you the general one. I'll ask you the question which everybody gets asked on the podcast. Um, so we need to do that. So, uh, Axel, what is it that makes your bits tingle? Yeah, the best answer I think I can give is observing what I would call the aha moment. And it was oftentimes even better in person than now virtually when somebody really had a substantial success and they can now see this time freedom point that we've talked about for quite a while now is really possible for me. Because in most cases, and I think your audience in, can understand, people come with some hesitation, can that really work for me? Mm. And then we work and we collaborate and I help them and stuff, but there is a different energy and, and, and joy and everything. We closed on the first deal. I got my first rent check. I actually made 300 bucks after everything. When you uh, physically, when you see him in front of you, which is not that easy anymore, but even online, it's just the conversation changes, right? And for me, this is one of those tingle moments. <laughs> so. Absolutely beautiful, yeah. Because it's, it's a it's a change of it's a change of way of being. Because we so many people are sort of in that trap of you know constantly working in order to work to earn the money, and they think when they retire then it'll be fine, and then it never is, and all that sort of stuff. And to get to position quite relatively early on, where you can just sort of choose where you want to go with life is uh, is a completely different mindset different way of thinking than we've been yeah exactly well there's also one thing i believe this is a little bit philosophical is there is so much of two things that i really don't like one is the overall massive negativity in anything that is associated with information or what quote-unquote news and part of that as a subset is this division in the few lucky ones and the vast majority of the normal ones and this reaction is oftentimes also a realization that division is not really true and for a moment people have at least i believe it feels like they have this thought of now i'm one of the lucky ones and pretty quickly after they say this bullshit about the lucky ones is just bullshit it is a matter of what i do and how i do it to get to a result and the media letting us believe that there are like 1% of lucky ones and 99% of losers is just wrong. Yeah. And, and to be able to say, I help you to see that by actually doing it, not just observing it, but doing it for yourself and see that that is just not true. Right? Just because they keep drumming it, I always use this and I hope if you have to, you can cut it out is if you have a pile of shit and a million flies are sitting on it, that doesn't mean the flies are right. <laughs> nice. Love that as the trailer. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Beautiful. 
thank you. Uh, my, my other question, just for you, Axel, this isn't a normal one. I, I just want to know um, because it's always just been ticking there at the back of my head. Did Lufthansa ever get back to you? Yes, actually, the fun. <laughs> so I'm in, in flight training in Shepard Air Force Base at the Euro-NATO Joint Jet Fighter Training Program in Texas, close to Dallas. And my mom calls me about four years after I had that initial conversation and said, I got a letter from Lufthansa. They're now ready to hire. And um, I called them and asked them if they're serious. <laughs> she didn't really believe it either. And they said, yeah, they would hire me. And um, she, they want to know if, if you're up for that. And I said to her, well, can you call them again and ask them if they give me credit for everything that I've already done? Because I'm literally in flight training. And she calls me back two days later and says, no, they said you have to start where everybody else has to start. And I made probably in hindsight, purely financially, not the greatest decision to say no, then I just finished my youth Air Force thing and so forth. Because I'm pretty sure I would have made more as an air, uh, airline pilot. But I've never regretted it. The life that I had, the things that I got to see as a test aviator coming to the US, doing the exchange program, building my own business and now helping people with the things that we discussed, that all would have never happened if I had actually taken that opportunity to, to go to Lufthansa. So I remind my mom, and I did for many years, right? Every once in a while when the contrail is a little narrower and a little faster, that was me. <laughs> so <laughs> then I retired, we, we retired that with it. But yeah, no, I, I got the opportunity, but I, I said, Thank you, but no, thank you. Brilliant. Uh, Axel, if people need to uh, want to have a check you out, um, find out more about what you're up to, interested maybe in even sort of uh, getting involved in something in the, in the American market or, or, or the eco stuff as well, where, where should they go? What should they do? Yeah, I mean, go to idealwealthgrower.com, um, put idealwealthgrower on Google or Yahoo or whatever search engine you use, and you will find lots of stuff about it. And if you go to the website, the first thing that pops up is the complimentary conversation. You can schedule it on my calendar and we can talk. Beautiful. I'll, I'll stick the stuff in the show notes as well so people can click on there if they're, if they're listening to it. Just go into the... Uh uh into where you host it from and the stuff will all be there so uh, axel thank you very much it's um yeah great journey but also um wise lessons and uh worded message as well sort of thing because uh whilst we're on that hamster wheel constantly um trying to earn money for to, to put food on the table we're always going to be struggling but if we get to a point where that just works for us uh, then we've got choice and then we can do what we want to do so um fantastic. yeah absolutely i hope more people can find a way if with my help or your help or other people's help to live their passion yeah that's brilliant thank you very much axel yeah. thank you andrew good. have a good week these podcasts are not necessarily here to give you all the answers i want you to think about what's been said what's come up and how you might apply that to your own situation and if you've enjoyed it then please subscribe to the podcast and of course share it on the social media platforms and so more people get a chance to hear what's going on. Thanks very much for listening. My name's Andrew Miller from Business Enjoyment, and I want you to enjoy your business so much it makes your bits tingle. <laughs>